Good morning. Welcome to First DC. I um, hope that uh, if you're visiting with us, you'll fill out one of the cards that are on the back table. Let us know a little bit about yourself. I'm glad to see everybody here this morning. I'm going to keep the announcements brief. The one announcement that I want to mention is that we will be canceling Bible study tonight. It's been, um, it's been wonderful when we're getting together, but tonight we're not going to get together because right after the worship service, Vicki and I are going to hop in the car and head to Winchester my uh, nephew is at Shenandoah University. He's a saxophonist, and he's giving a concert at 2 o'clock. It takes two hours to get there. So pray for a tailwind, for God to open up the highways, and that there's nobody sitting along the side with those funny machines that they use. To... So not that I'm going to be speeding. I don't want you to feel that, but um, if, if, the, if the roads could be cleared, that would be wonderful. So anyhow... I'm going to say good morning to all of you right now after service. I'm going to be disappearing. So I'm glad you're all here. Um, glad, to, glad to see you here this morning. Let's go. And I guess I should ask, is there anything that anybody feels needs to be highlighted as far as the schedule? Okay, well then let's go ahead and, and begin with um, a prayer. Let's, let's make ourselves ready for worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us another day. Thank you for allowing us to come together here this morning. We come because we want to. We come because we're here and we want to praise you, Father. We want to praise you because we love you. We know how much you love us. So, Father, I pray that, that if anybody is here kind of out of obligation, feels like it's what they should do, um, I pray, Lord, that their heart will be softened, that they'll fall more in love with you to a point that they just love being here and praising you. I pray that we all will get farther and farther into that kind of a relationship with you, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm, uh, I'm going to use Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2 as our call to worship, but I'm also going to give you a little mini-sermon real quick. On our Sunday nights, we have been getting together talking about parables. Last Sunday, we talked about the parable of the wineskins, how you don't put old, or new wine in old wineskins. And Jesus was telling them, look, you have created so many man-made ways of worshiping, so many man-made rules and traditions and customs that my new religion, if you will, that I'm bringing along, it's not going to fit into those old traditions I'm bringing that to you this morning because I want you to hear and I want you to think about what our call to worship is. This morning it says, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. I looked up the word extol. It means to praise enthusiastically. Now the reason I'm talking about those wineskins is because I know many of us grew up in a tradition that says, Church is a place where you have to sit still and be quiet and be somber, and we're going to sing some hymns. Listen, I want you to hear this again. Come, let us sing for joy. So make sure there's joy when you're singing. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and praise enthusiastically with music and song. And I don't think it's any coincidence this morning in Sunday school, we were told to erupt. Because how much we love God, we should erupt with praise. I'm setting you guys up, okay? 
These, the praise band has two good songs ready for us to do exactly this. Come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and praise him enthusiastically with music and song. Are you ready to sing? Amen. Let's stand up. Let's sing with the praise band. All right. I hope everybody's well rested with their extra hour of sleep because you're going to need it. Here we go. Thank you. 
say and do Be found by my faith in you Lift up holy hands and sing Let the praises ring Let the praises ring Let the praises ring Take a moment to, to greet your neighbor.
She did come back there in the back. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is also um, a way of, of praising the Lord, too, here as we get together now. And we um, share, if you want to share some praises, we also want to lift up prayer requests. Um, I know that I've heard from several different sources now that Bill Disprow is having a little bit of problems with um, recovering from his, from his knee surgery. He's having some heart problems, so um, we want to keep him, keep him in prayer and, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll just, we want to keep... Keep Bill in, in prayer as he recovers from his knee surgery. Do we have any other prayer requests, praises? I have a praise. My aunt from Western Pennsylvania is coming in to spend the whole week with us. All right. Yeah, it's, it's always good when family can, can get together. last night and hopefully she's okay and the people that were in the accident with her so it's a praise that car didn't make out so well but she's uh, good okay that's good thank you we'll get dave and then we'll then we'll come over there yes if you could keep my father in your prayers um he's in lehigh valley hospital and uh yeah just keep them in your prayers. Okay. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Um, pray for Chris's sister. She was in a real bad accident, and she uh, lost her memory. I forget her name. <laughs> That's okay. God knows who you're talking about. That's perfectly fine. Aaron, you want to come up? Oh, yeah. Did you? Well, keep your hand up so he knows where to go. <laughs> See, he was lost. He had no idea. Thank you. I just want to give a praise yesterday. When I walked into the clothing yesterday, we had hardly any baby stuff. So I said, God, we need more baby stuff than this. Then another person brought stuff in, then another person, then someone with six bags came in, and then a lady came at the very end and brought four huge bags of baby clothes. So God answers prayer. <laughs> And we talked about that in class this morning, too, how he doesn't just give us a little bit. He, he gives his grace abundantly. Yep. I have a praise as well. Yesterday was our school's extra give, even though we decided not to do the extra give this year because we didn't agree with some of the things. And so we did a day of plenty, and we actually had our most successful. We were very nervous about not doing it, but... Yeah, it was our most successful. We had almost 1,000 people come to this Fall Fest. It was just wow. a beautiful day, a lot of fellowship. Um, 
spreading God's word and, and our school, and we're all just feeling very blessed. So Wonderful. <laughs> God is good. All right. Um, I asked Jim how his new job is going, and he said it's going fairly well. Good. And he's actually just been transferred to a new building and is getting to work first shift now. So that's okay, good. yeah, great. Thank God for that. Well, let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for just giving us this day an opportunity to, to praise you and to think about all the ways that you have blessed us through the week. And Father, we also come to you knowing that you are the great physician, and we lift up those that you heard this morning. I pray that you will consider the prayers of those that were lifted by all the members here this morning. Father, we thank you that when you do give, you give very abundantly. We thank you that you, you care for us enough to, to provide for our needs and that all we have to do is ask. You're ready. You already knew the need. You already had the solution. And all it took was for us to ask. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the way you provide for us through the week. We pray that you'll accept our offering as a token of our worship, a token of our thanks, and that you will bless it and use it to further your kingdom, your kingdom here in Palmyra, but also your kingdom throughout the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand, and we can still sing enthusiastically, but we'll you know, sing in a little bit different way as we sing hymn number one, How Great Thou Art.
seated. And we're going to continue our study of the Apostle John's first letter to his church, the book of 1 John. And I want to tell the story about a pastor, a new pastor at a church. He started off his sermon with 1 John 4.11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Anybody recognize that? I'm not getting the... <laughs> I'm not getting... <laughs> well, if you remember, that was last week's sermon, but the, but the story was that the pastor said, if you, if you do it, I'll give you a new sermon. So I've got to ask, how did you do this week? Did you do okay with that? Did you love one another? All right, good. Then I'll, I'll go with the new sermon then. <laughs> but the new sermon does also start with a short story. Um, I found a story about a man who was on a road trip, and he decided he was hungry, he needed to stop at McDonald's, and he was in a hurry, so he ordered through the drive-thru, and of course, after he placed his order, he came around and stopped at the next window to pay. And when the attendant leaned out of the window, the man noticed that she was wearing an attractive hand-carved cross, and it was hanging from her neck. And the gentleman said, hey, I, I like your cross. And the attendant said, well, thank you. But she quickly followed it up with, I like the person who died on the cross for my sins, and I love the person who rose from the grave. Now, she could have just left it at thank you, but she showed just how simple it is to share our testimony with someone. And this morning, we're going to hear about some testimonies related to Jesus. That attendant also showed that she had a proper understanding and appreciation for the cross and for the man who died on it. And this morning, as we read John's letter, we're going to hear about some people who did not have a proper understanding or appreciation for the cross and Jesus. We're also going to see another thing. We're going to hear about Jesus, and we're going to hear about how Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, from birth to death, from Bethlehem all the way to Golgotha. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find in it. I pray that our ears and our minds, and especially our hearts, will be open to, to your word this morning. Help us to understand your message. Help us to let it move from our heads to our hearts, and then help us to let it move to our feet as well. Help us to apply it to our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, like John's been doing all through his letter, he gives us a great segue. He gave us one last week, and he, uh, it leads us right into today's thought. We finished off last week hearing him say, this is the victory that has overcome the world. And he begins today in verse 5 by saying, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, who wouldn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6 tells us, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Okay, that didn't really 
explain who he's talking about or who wouldn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you can also see that something strange about this verse. Just out of the blue, he starts talking about water and blood. Where in the world did that come from? That hasn't been anything that he's talked about yet. It just seems to pop in here. Well, have you ever been in a restaurant and there's somebody sitting in the booth behind you and they're on their phone having a conversation with someone Well, and they have the speakerphone on? That's terribly irritating because I didn't realize this was some kind of a group message, group chat, you know? I mean, if you want to have that conversation, turn the speaker off, you know? But sometimes it could be even more irritating when they're sitting in the booth behind you having a conversation and they don't have the speaker on. Because then you find yourself trying to figure out what that other person is saying. And the only way that you can do that is you listen to the person that you can hear, and you wait, and you try to figure out what that other person must have said based on the response that this person gives. And it's just, it's so irritating, right? Well, shame on you for listening to them in the first place. Shame on us, <laughs> because I do the same thing. But that's the same kind of thing that we're having here in this letter with John. We're hearing his side of a debate. Okay, he's, he's giving a, a, a response to this um, situation where they've got people who are, who are arguing that Jesus was just a man. You remember, this is, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, but a, a particular group of the, the Gnostics believed that Jesus was just a man, that he was born as just a human, and then at, baptism, at his baptism... They claim that that's when the Christ spirit came upon him. That's when he became the Christ. And then they claim that he held that for a while until just before his crucifixion and that the Christ spirit left him so that when he died, when he was on the cross, he was only a human again. Because they just can't fathom, they can't, they can't understand how a, how a God could actually be killed, right? That, that was something that they couldn't explain something that they weren't very happy with, and so they, they came up with their own, their own theory. They, they believed that, that God couldn't die, and so the person that was on the cross at Golgotha had to be just a man. And they believed that the holy baby born in Bethlehem that grew up to be a man, walked into the Jordan River with John, John the baptizer, he had to be just a human, just a man as well. So John starts by making the point in verse 5 that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was the Son of God. And we know he starts his gospel with the phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then just a few verses later, he further embellishes, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling upon us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even Luke records in his gospel that the angel told Mary, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus was deity, the second part of the Trinity, the Son of the triune God. But John also points out that Jesus was indeed a man as well. It could be one way to interpret this water and blood phrase that we see in verse 6. John says he did not come by water only. Well, nobody said that he did. Nobody that we can see here, right? So somebody must be arguing that Jesus only came by water. 
Well, in Greek mythology, the gods didn't have blood flowing through their veins. They had a watery substance called ichor. So if the Greeks wanted to say that Jesus was just a god, or that he was a god, they would claim that he only came by water, that he didn't have any blood, that he would have this ichor in his veins. But John also recorded in his gospel the death of Jesus. He, he says, but when they came to the Jesus and found that he was already dead, remember while he's hanging there on the cross, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood. But it doesn't stop there. So it brings blood, which shows that it was a human. But he actually says, brings a sudden flow of blood and water. So I think even there he was pointing out that Jesus was human, the blood, and God, and God in their understanding of what a God would be like as far as the water coming out as well. Blood and water. Another interpretation, of course, could be that Jesus was a man who came through the natural, watery process of childbirth. Commentators aren't sure. Um, they, they just don't know exactly what John meant, and that's unfortunate for us, because he doesn't explain it. And what that means is if he didn't explain his phrase, water and blood, and coming from the water and blood, that means that all of his readers did understand it. He didn't have to explain it. So it just works out poorly for us that he doesn't lay it all out here, but the people who were hearing it did understand. Commentators do agree that the most explanation when he's talking about did not come by water only, he's referring to baptism. It is a place where he and the Gnostics do agree that Jesus was baptized. He did start his ministry with the water, with, with baptism. But he also says, John like, makes sure he tells them, Jesus came by water and blood to argue that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, all the way as well. John's struggling with a heresy that minimizes the value of the cross. In fact, it actually destroys the, the value of the cross. John insists that the testimony of the water and the blood upholds a full incarnation, the idea of taking on a body. And then John says, I, you know what, I've, I've even got witnesses. In verses 7 through 8, he says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And the reason he has to put that phrase there, the three are in agreement, that goes all the way back to Jewish law, where at least two witnesses were required to confirm somebody's testimony. Back in Deuteronomy 19.15, it tells us one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. They all have to agree in their testimony. Now, Jesus' trial illustrates the formula very well in Mark. Mark chapter 14. Oops. Mark, this is where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. So it shows that it's not just this Old Testament um, situation that, that maybe went out of style. No, it's still in place you know, during Jesus' time while he's alive, as it's recorded here by Mark, but even later as John's writing his letter as well. So Mark 14, 
verses 55, starting in 55, it talks about the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Oh, and I skipped some. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. So because the Sanhedrin witnesses couldn't agree with their stories, their claims against Jesus failed. They couldn't even get two witnesses to agree. But here in John's letter, he points to three witnesses, and he's about to add a fourth. Verse 9, he says, We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. So now he's adding God to the mix, right? Hey, if you're going to be willing to accept human testimony, then you got to be willing to accept God's testimony because it's God's testimony, you know, and, and God's testimony is greater than any, any humans. And so verse 10, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. God would know Jesus pretty well, right? I mean, if you came to me, if you came to me and wanted to talk to me about my daughter, Janae, and you said she's a very shy, very quiet person, I would say, I think we're talking about two different people. But if they insisted, and they said, no, 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 that's, isn't, she's married to a guy named Rich, and they live in Harrisburg, right? And she's got this flower business, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, that, that's, that sounds like Janae. And then if they still claim, well, no, Janae's a very shy, very quiet person, I'd still very politely disagree with them. And if they kept insisting, I'd have to say, look, I've kind of known her all her life, right? Are you calling me a liar? And that's what, Paul, what John is saying here. Look, God knows his son. And if you are claiming that, that Jesus is not the son of God, then you're calling God a liar. Matthew records in his gospel, Chapter 3, verse, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In front of a whole lot of witnesses, God declared, Jesus is my Son. And so John's telling the Gnostics, if you believe that Jesus is just a man, then you're saying he's not the Son of God. And worse, you're saying that God's a liar. And I think he would put in parentheses, and I wouldn't want to be you if you're calling God a liar. Verses 11 through 12, back in 1 John, tell us, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The testimony of God has to do with life, with eternal life. Since eternal life for the Christian comes through the death of the Son, 
than to deny the blood, to deny the cross, to deny the substitutionary work of Jesus on Calvary that puts your salvation in great jeopardy. And if you claim some kind of divine enlightenment, some kind of newfound knowledge, but it neglects the Son and his crucifixion, it's going to have disastrous eternal consequences. There were people who argued against the fact that Jesus was the Christ all his life from Bethlehem to Golgotha. And that sounds ludicrous to us. But we might be able to sympathize since it happened a a long time ago, right? Way back in John's time. It was all new. It's a new sect, a new denomination, if you will. Jesus, that charismatic and controversial guy that came from Nazareth, where nothing nothing good ever came from. He had just died a few decades before. Maybe he just wasn't understood properly, right? So why would I be wasting our time talking about something that only applies to the first or second century church? Well, the problem is, it's still happening. We're getting close to Advent. You know, we'll start seeing that that phrase, that keep Christ in Christmas. But maybe we need to create one that says, keep Christ in Christianity. Here's what I mean. The story's a little bit old, but in 1994, so that's less than 30 years ago, the World Council of Churches sponsored a conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The conference was largely funded by the Presbyterian Church, but also funding came from American Baptist Church, the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Church of America, and the United Methodist Church. Now, just want to point out, we are the Evangelical Congregational Church, not the Evangelical Church of America. So all these different churches, they funded this conference For four days, 2,200 people from 49 states and 27 countries filled the Minneapolis Convention Center. Had a great attendance. But the goal of the conference was to re-image or re-imagine God. The conference called for a second reformation that would begin to radically change the church's belief systems. The result of the conference was the development of a new anchor for truth. The foundation for Christian theology would no longer be in the historic events of salvation as recorded in the Bible. No, truth would now be rooted in Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. It's where we get the words philosophy and sophisticated. According to followers of Sophia, and yes, there are followers of her who use crystals and so forth, the fact that Sophia is a female's name, it also allowed them to then have sort of a personification of this, of this idea. But followers, according to followers of Sophia, they see her as the central pivot of creation and represents the feminine aspect in everything. So wisdom, or Sophia, was and is a central idea in Gnosticism. Gnosticism does still exist. To those at the conference, Sophia never really takes a specific historic form, but appears in many ways and in many spiritual traditions. She might show up in Native American tribal dances, but also in African Zulu rituals, and they're equally valuable for theological understanding, according to them. This conference had an explicit message that Sophia is the place 
in us where the entire universe resides. You see what they did. Instead of making God the center of our universe, they've now made themselves the center of the universe and and the center of where God exists. And so for a multicultural therapeutic society like ours that just always wants to just feel good, this was religion made to order. This was perfect. Self-discovery is now the platform for divine revelation. When the conference was over, Christology, meaning the study of Christ, Christology was totally dismantled, and the target of the conference was the cross. They claimed that Christian beliefs about Jesus promoted violence. A father killing his son is a formula for child abuse. One speaker, Dolores Williams, she expressed her convictions this way. She said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within. Well, she's right about one thing. We don't need folks hanging on the cross. We only need one. But we did need that one. We need a theology of atonement. We do need one man hanging on a cross. And we do need blood dripping, as uncomfortable as that might sound and as weird as that might sound. Her comments and the underlying goal of the conference in general is just the kind of thing that Paul describes in the first chapters of 1 Corinthians, where he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, Sophia. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom, or Sophia, of God. Not only does Paul anchor the meaning of Jesus in the cross, but he also says the wisdom, or Sophia, of God is found there too. This means that the cross cannot be demoted, marginalized, or trivialized in any good Christian doctrine of salvation. The mystery of what God is doing on our behalf is right there, in the cross, in all of its uniqueness, in all of its discomfort, in all of its severity. Christ is not just one example of God's divine wisdom revealed to the world. He's not some kind of wisdom that can stand alongside other religious systems. I know that there have people, been people who have talked about, well, you can be a Christian and a Buddhist because they feel like they're not... They're not the same. They're not both religions. Well, they are. You can't be Buddhist. You can't be Taoist. You can't be anything else like this and be Christian. They are all religions which point you to another God. I've talked about yoga. It's a religious exercise that points you to a God within. Don't do yoga. Just do exercises, okay? Just, there's just so much out there, so many weird things where they talk about the God within. You hear people talking about finding myself, and finding the God within me, and so forth. The Holy Spirit is in you. That's all you need. Christ is the wisdom of God, and that wisdom is made very clear to us in his saving death on the cross. The testimony of the water of baptism 
the testimony of the blood of crucifixion and the testimony of the Spirit in each one of us testify to the truth that the crucified Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God. Amen. (laughs) Anyone who makes this confession has the testimony abiding within them. Anyone who denies that confession are liars, as John is saying. To accept the testimony about the Son is to believe in the Son, and there is eternal life in the Son, and it's freely available for all who simply believe in Him. I encourage you to stand with me as we sing our final hymn and think about the blood, the water, the cross. I know it's an ugly, weird, maybe uncomfortable thought, but, but yes, Jesus did take on your sins by hanging there on that cross, his, his tortured body. There was blood, and it was dripping, and it was weird, but it was necessary. Let's sing together hymn number 133. <laughs> So as you leave here today, may the Lord bless you and protect you 
And may you also cling to the old rugged cross, but make sure that God's, or that Jesus is still not hanging on there. Remember its importance, but also remember that there was more to the story. Keep Jesus in mind. Keep his salvation in mind, but also his resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.